and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. How's it going, Gianna? How are you feeling? Gianna <laughs> had a little surgery this week. Oh god, I feel fine. Sorry, this is a lot of information that you guys probably don't want to know, but I got my wisdom teeth taken out, no big deal, but I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little bit weird just because I'm still in recovery a little bit yeah so try not to make me laugh too much today because okay i'm sore no promises i am super funny you're just so funny so <laughs> just gonna be writhing in pain this whole episode <laughs> oh god so do you want to talk about what we did this week yeah <laughs> so we watched hamilton the hamil film on disney plus and it was the first time that both of us watched Hamilton, because neither of us had seen it on stage, unfortunately. I surprisingly really, really enjoyed it. I don't know why. You were surprised? I think because of the hype of Hamilton. I there's something inside me when that when things get really, really hyped up Mm -hmm. that I start to feel like a little bit of skepticism Mm -hmm. creep in because for so long, I haven't been able to make that decision for myself. I just hear so many different things. Yeah. But Gianna and I, I don't know that we've talked about it that much, but Gianna and I love musicals. Mm-hmm. I think we are a huge musical family. We grew up watching old musicals. My favorite movie for the longest time was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, <laughs> which is such a weird movie. It's, it's so problematic, it's, but it's oh, so good. It's really messed up. Like It's bad. It's, it's bad. bad. It's an interesting film because it's the first movie musical where music was written specifically for a film, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. So definitely problematic, but a really important piece of film when studying film history. Maybe we can watch that tonight. There's that whole song about, like, kidnapping women. Yeah, but you know what? They all fell in love. They did. And it has what's-his-face from West Side Story in it. Gideon. Gideon. (laughs) There's this scene in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers where he pretends to be a cat so he can kidnap his girlfriend. (laughs) Please just watch this movie. With caution, but... With much caution, but if you have seen it, you know what to expect. Yeah, super weird. Anyways, we do love a good musical, and I also really liked Hamilton. I've never been able to see it, and I just... I guess I never listened to the soundtrack because... Maybe I just like to experience that in person first, so it was nice to hear it all and sequential order and see it. I think it's really cool that they were able to do that. It was nice to watch. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I also don't know how many of you all still have basic TV or, Mm -hmm. I don't know, we grew up watching a lot of PBS and when I'm home at mom's, I end up watching a lot of PBS and sometimes they do have recordings of other musicals. Yeah, like Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, sometimes they just like randomly come on. it's always on. Yeah. Yeah, and a play that we actually saw for, I think it was my graduation trip when we went to New York. Mm -hmm. We saw She Loves Me. Which is one of my favorites. I. What is your favorite musical? I, w- I would say movie or stage production. Uh, okay, well, I feel like I can't even say this because I didn't get to go see the musical. But Don't say you mine. did. Don't say mine. <laughs> I'm gonna say it. No. Moulin Rouge. You gotta talk about Moulin Rouge. Oh my god, guys. First of all, Moulin Rouge is my favorite movie of all time. I stan Baz Luhrmann. I freaking love all of his work. 
Moulin Rouge is just, oh my god, it's so good. I cry every single time, but I just, for me, it's the perfect movie. It's funny, it's sad, it's a musical, it's beautiful, mm -hmm. it's got glitter and costumes and pop culture references mixed with art references. Yeah, with art references. It's literally, it Toulouse was made for Trek, me. just hanging out. It was made for me, yeah. but almost a year ago now, last August, mm -hmm. my best friend and I, we went to see Moulin Rouge on Broadway in New York for our 10-year friendiversary. And I can't even describe. If you get the chance when it reopens to go see Moulin Rouge on Broadway, just it's worth every penny, I promise you. I think it was, it was one of the best days of my life. One of the best things I've ever seen. The cast was incredible. The songs, the set. It's everything I needed from the movie, but it was like you're there and they really mm -hmm. play on that aspect of audience interaction. They want you to feel like you're actually kind of in the Moulin Rouge watching a play, mm -hmm. but you're part of it. And you just like shoot, they shoot glitter out into the audience, which is glitter is one of my favorite colors. Of so <laughs> it was just so so fantastic so that's that's my favorite yeah i saw on the town one time with oh, i love on the town too mom and one of my dear aunts and i really liked that play because it was very dance heavy yes and i've never seen a broadway show like that i am very I was talking to Bianca about this earlier. I am like a sucker for that cliche, just pure joy, mm -hmm. Broadway humor. Yeah. That's just really silly, mm -hmm. which is why I love She Loves Me so much. Yeah. To see dance like that was so cool. And uh, I love that movie too. Oh, I know. It's yeah. so sweet. So today is kind of bittersweet all around. Today is really bittersweet. Oh, I'm actually getting kind of sad thinking about it. Oh, no. I know. So we are feeling a little sentimental today because today is one of our last episodes that, well, is the last episode that Bianca and I will be recording together in Oklahoma. Yes. I am returning to... Pennsylvania. We have two really exciting exhibitions coming up at work for the fall. So those are about to be installed and we're doing a lot of prep work for that and giving, getting everything um, set up to go virtual and hopefully um, integrating a lot of virtual tours and things like that. I Hopefully we'll be able to get back into the museum space with precautions, but I do, I am paying rent for an apartment there. and <laughs> That sucks. <laughs> so yeah, gotta go back to Pennsylvania, but yeah. things to do, people to see. Places to go. Places to go, <laughs> you know, so. I'm a businesswoman. I'm a businesswoman. <laughs> the other reason why we are feeling a bit sentimental today as well is because for today's episode, in the last half, we did an interview at the OSU Museum of Art with a couple of their staff members. Bianca and I both started our careers at this museum. It was truly where it all began. It felt so good to be back there. This place was my home throughout college, and Bianca and I have been really wanting to do recordings within gallery spaces since we started this podcast, and mm -hmm. it really felt like a perfect place to start this kind of collaboration. Yeah, definitely. It was so nice to 
go back and one of the last things we're going to do here and uh, see some old friends from a bit of a distance. Mm -hmm. And they were so accommodating. Thank you for letting us even come in at all uh, and bringing out the works for us to see and interact with up close. So with that, let's art pop talk. So today we are not only talking about our up-close look at two prints that were recently added to the OSUMA's permanent collection, but we are also going to be talking with two museum workers, the Associate Curator of Education, Kristen Elliott, and the Marketing and Communication Specialist, Kristen Duncan, two incredible staff members and former colleagues of mine that I can't wait for you all to meet. So, Bianca. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to talk about this art movement today because I feel like it's really on brand for the podcast. It's totally on brand and it's one of my favorite art movements because, I mean, the satire and critique and Mm -hmm. no fucks given in this movement is just one of my favorite (laughs) things. So I'm really excited to start talking about some pop art today. We have a few more little pop art conversations coming up for you all, but today we are going to talk about these two pieces specifically in relation to the OSUMA art collection. We have got Robert Indiana, his love, red-blue, from 1991, which is an etching on paper. And then we've got Robert Cottingham, an American alphabet series, the letter H, from 1997 to 2009. Before we talk about these two pieces in particular, I just wanted to give a little background on the pop art movement just so we can kind of situate what these two artists are doing within it. Pop art is an art movement that emerged in the 1950s and flourished in the 1960s in America and Britain. They were drawing inspiration from sources in popular and commercial culture and expanded globally throughout the 70s, so this kind of continued to evolve. Early pop art in Britain was fueled by American popular culture viewed from that kind of distance, while the American artists were inspired by what they saw and that kind of lived experience within American consumerist culture. So if you are sitting in an art history class and, you know, it's the first day of your pop art lesson, (laughs) you are probably going to start with the British artist Richard Hamilton. Of course. How could we forget? Yeah, you really can't. And so, well, you could, but we're just going (laughs) to continue on that Western art history track. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Richard Hamilton created this collage in 1956 that's called Just what is it that makes today's home so different, so appealing? (laughs) And I think collage is also something that just, it's not only remained a form of contemporary art and contemporary pop art because you have that direct transference and critique of printed visual culture like magazines and advertisements, Mm -hmm. but I'm curious to kind of think about how this has evolved with social media with us seeing ads digitally so much more how we think about uh, pop art in a in a new context Mm -hmm. but in the 50s we have um, this critic Lawrence Alloway in conjunction with Richard Hamilton who are probably credited with coining the term pop art. This was possibly in the context of that Hamilton's famous collage so in this collage 
it was actually made to announce the independent group's 1956 exhibition this is tomorrow in london and in the image we see this kind of buff muscular dude who's mostly naked holding this conveniently placed uh tootsie pop so this movement generally comes as a contrast to the massive performative and very gestural paintings of abstract expressionism many pop artists created paintings and artworks that mimicked the industrial printing techniques of the time and this kind of ironic approach is maybe best exemplified by Lichtenstein who methodically painted the Bende dots which is a mechanical process used to print pulp comics we have other artists like Andy Warhol who actually shifted entirely away from that mimicked industrial painted style, like individually painting those Bende dots, to actually uh, using industrial techniques for mass production. So Warhol began making silk screens before removing himself entirely from the process, well, almost entirely from the process, by having others do the actual printing in his studio named The Factory. Yeah, so this idea of mass production within art and the presence of the artist's idea, but the removal of the artist's own hand is something that has continued since pop art and is a very common practice, particularly amongst print studios and sculpture studios. Working in both these mediums myself and while also critiquing a contemporary consumer consumerist culture, pop art holds a, a huge influence within my practice as well as just a movement and a topic of interest that I'm very drawn to and intrigued by. So taking someone like Jeff Koons, for example, and Jeff Koons Studios, who is a contemporary artist influenced by pop art, I would recommend watching the R21 video on Coons. It's really funny, I think. They film the studio space and interview the artists actually working on the sculptures. And they say things like, oh, yeah, just Jeff hasn't been down here to make or fabricate his own works, you know, in forever. And this is all to say this is not a secret at all. Like, everyone right. knows that. But I do find this, like, candid relationship between the artists and Coons just kind of funny and interesting. <laughs> yeah. So everyone has their own opinion on contemporary studios that function to mass-produce art in this way. But it tends to be somewhat of a hot-button issue. And I think just a topic of curiosity for those both in and outside the art world. We will talk about mass production in art more, but just to leave us with something to think about today is that collaboration and hiring other artists to work on your project is not as new of a concept as we think it is. Mm -hmm. We talked about this in Judy Chicago's work, The Dinner Party, and we know this is something that's been apparent when we look at very famous and historic artworks created by old classic masters. And it's a it's an idea that presents itself, I think, with some hesitation. We so in the art world think of things maybe as ascribed to one person. And I think it's not a bad thing as long as we're open about it and talk like being transparent about who's doing the work and what kind of representation and payment the people who are doing this mm -hmm. work are getting. 
But I also think in terms of pop art, it's really interesting to think about that tension between the consumer and what we think of as this abstract idea of the artist. Yeah, for sure. So a lot to talk about there with mass production and also just the way that art studios are functioning today. Yes. So let's talk about Robert Indiana. One of the pieces we are looking at is his iconic print with the block letters love. Robert Indiana was born Robert Clark in Newcastle, Indiana in 1928. He was adopted as an infant and spent his childhood moving frequently around the state of Indiana. I'm going to use a quote from Indiana's website because I just think it's um, a pretty lovely description. Quote, a self-proclaimed American painter of signs Indiana created a highly original body of work that explores American identity, personal history, and the power of abstraction and language, establishing an important legacy that resonates in the work of many contemporary artists who make the written word a central element in their oeuvre, end quote. So in 1954, he moved to New York and joined an artist collective with figures including Ellsworth Kelly, James Rosenquist, Agnes Martin, and Indiana, like some of his fellow artists, kind of were using the area's abandoned warehouses for materials, creating sculptural assemblages from wood, rusted metals, and other kind of found objects. His prominence as an artist grew throughout the 60s, and in 1966, we see this turning point for him with the success of the love image, which had been featured in a solo exhibition at the Stable Gallery. The word love, which is a theme central to Indiana's work, first appeared in the painting Four Star Love from 1961. Love was a subject of great spiritual significance for the artist, illustrated by the painting Love is God from 1964, which was inspired by an inscription in the Christian science churches that he actually attended growing up. So initially, he started experimenting with different compositions of stacked letters in a series of rubbings from 1964, where Indiana turned this design into kind of that block traditional print that we see today, which was a departure from those other paintings where he's using that word. Indiana's love was selected by the Museum of Modern Art in 1965 for its Christmas card. Quickly, uh, it permeated across popular culture and was adopted as an emblem of the love generation. It appeared as a best-selling United States Postal Service stamp in 1973 and reproduced countless actually unauthorized products were made with this artwork on them. Yeah, the, uh, the appropriation of this piece is quite ironic. yes. This kind of um, mass-produced image, again, some of which was unauthorized, led to a lot of negative criticism of the artist, where people started arguing or making the assumption that the artist was quote-unquote a sellout. However, the image's audience had, had made him a kind of an icon of modern art. And the universality of the subject to which Indiana continued to return is further evinced by his translation of love into other languages. So he has statues of love in Spanish and Hebrew. 
Indiana found uh, love through his art and adoration with the public. There's something about this work that is so uniquely transcribed to all of us when we see it. But according to Barbara Haskell, who was a curator of the Whitney Museum of American Art, recognized that, quote, love for Indiana was a dangerous commodity that can die out and lead to disappointment. On one hand, he accepted that love became a symbol that brought him international renown, but for him, love has also had this element of fragility and precariousness, end quote. And although he may not have used this exact identification, I want to acknowledge Indiana's place in LGBTQ plus history as a gay artist. Art historian Robert Storr notes that to be an openly gay man in the 50s and 60s was practically impossible without putting on kind of a series of masks, if you will. He says, quote, Indiana never hid himself completely behind masks. Rather, he was using them as filters so that the thing that was important to him could come through. They would come through very clearly to people who understood and were sympathetic to his concerns, end quote. And Indiana actually just passed away a few years ago in May of 2018. And I started reading about some of this. I I wonder what the outcomes of this case were. But one day before his death, there was a lawsuit that was filed over claims that his caretaker had isolated him from family and friends and was marketing, again, unauthorized reproductions or even fakes of his works. Horrible. It's just awful. Uh, I also want to make sure that we say Indiana was so much more than this love work, mm-hmm. although that's what we're talking about today. Please go look at more of his artwork. He was an incredible graphic designer, and the way he utilizes text with more than just this word is really fascinating. Despite this most famous image, Indiana did become kind of a recluse later in his life, uh, which may have been because of the situation with his caretaker and uh, art dealers. But uh, he left New York and 1978 actually and became kind of disillusioned with the New York art scene and because of those harsh and kind of unfavorable reviews he received he um he left he left the art world or left the art hub but really continued to make really interesting work the past two decades he still has had a few different kind of retrospectives I think one was actually about to open at the Albright Knox gallery uh right before he died In 1960, he also created these kind of diamond-shaped paintings with the words eat or die, as well as works that were inspired by the civil rights movement. So he is looking at kind of a broader context of American culture besides this symbol of love, Mm -hmm. which I just wanted to, yeah, bring your attention to. Yeah, we have a really good conversation about this piece in the interview at the museum, I still am very fascinated with this reproduction and appropriation of love that we see, you know, people have in their home used for home decor or bookends or random things. And I don't want the artist to be so far removed from this work anymore that is so iconic. But 
So the next artist we are looking at today is Robert Cottingham. Cottingham has been known as a photorealist artist, despite his rebuttal of this characterization as he would define himself instead as a realist painter working in a long tradition of the American vernacular scenes and landscapes like pop artists before him. So Cottingham's well-known pieces depict mid 20th century signs, railroad boxcars, mechanical components, and other technologies, and explore this fascination with typeface through interesting and dynamic perspectives or viewpoints, and through a very intensive use of vivid and flat color planes. So for me, Bianca, I'm curious if you agree, but it's his use of color and perspective that blurs these notions of photorealism and abstraction for me, because the perspective is quite accurate, but when obscuring these flat planes of color, your eyes can't help but begin to isolate these and all these different blocks of colors when you stare at it for such a long time, creating this whole other new image and experience for you as a viewer. Yeah, looking at the detail of his work is is pretty incredible, but I love whenever you kind of see this alphabet series as a whole and you do start thinking about not only language and detail of the image and the, the letters that you're seeing, but when you piece them all together, it is kind of like this compilation of color blocks as well. Yeah. So the piece that the OSUMA pulled for us is Cunningham's lithograph, print H, like Bianca said, which is part of his An American Alphabet series printed through 1997 up until 2009. Before we go into talking about the visuals of the print, I wanted to talk about the process of printmaking. You all know, and I've mentioned how trippy the process of printmaking can be. So this is a great opportunity to give a little description on what lithography is. <laughs> Before I do that, Bianca, do you want to try to explain lithography? Yes. Lithography is prints. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I don't understand printmaking. I'm sorry. Gianna, please, please help me. No, it's just, <laughs> that is just funny just because I've said it before. I do printmaking and when you're doing it, you don't even know what is happening. So I'm going to try to explain it to the best of my ability here today. But the simplest way I can break it down is that lithography is based on the principle that oil and water don't mix. That's the biggest takeaway. Also, lithography breaks the idea of the traditional rubber or woodblock carving that a lot of you are probably seeing on Instagram today, which is known as reduction printmaking, as you carve away your image as you are printing these different colors. But with litho, there's no carving. Instead, you draw with a pen or a sharpie on a flat plate. And skipping over a couple other of steps on how to handle this plate, essentially, when you are ready to print and roll your ink over this plate, you first spray down the surface with water or a water chemical solution beforehand. <laughs> Bianca's laughing at me. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand photography either, if we're being oh, honest. I 1000% don't understand How photography. How possible? Okay, we don't have it's, time for this. Because going off of, again, this principle that water and oil don't mix, your ink will only stick to where your Sharpie marks are or what you have drawn on the surface. So so I know that this is still really probably confusing, but after all these years, it still doesn't even quite make sense to me as I said it. But 
as a printmaker, I think it's really important to attempt to try to explain how it works because, in my opinion, you can't talk about printed works without talking about the process because, for me, I think print is process art. No, you're a thousand percent right. Thank you for doing the most work and <laughs> trying to educate an art historian about how prints work because I feel like whenever I write anything, it's like, ah, yes, this is a print. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I've mentioned before that printmaking is highly revered, yes, yet super not understood and I think misunderstood sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So now getting back to the image itself, I love this series because just as the work itself can take on a different form because of the color play and the perspective, the individual print can be read differently when displayed by itself and with the rest of the letters, with the rest of the alphabet. Mm -hmm. And I want to note that the OSUMA has the alphabet series, which was displayed in their last exhibition. But today, again, we are only looking at that one letter. So this idea of playing with the composition of the series by choosing to separate the letters into individual works, I think speaks to this larger interest that Cottingham has, and again, typography and letters, but also the conceptual and psychological impact that creating certain isolated words or letters have. And an idea that we see throughout his career as well. In other works, we might see a really dramatic or foreshortened perspective to where only a couple letters are legible, therefore creating a whole new meaning or a whole new word. And this piece, we have a dramatic use of cropping and enlarging as the letter is pushed to the up-close foreground that creates this very enigmatic visual chemistry as our mind is going back and forth with interpreting this as a formal letter or as an abstracted form. Ooh, I love that. I love this word. So in doing my research on Cunningham, I kept seeing this comment come up on all these articles or museum pages that I just wanted to address. It says, his crisp, often monumental canvases celebrate and accentuate the forms of his subjects while remaining devoid of nostalgia. And it's this devoid of nostalgia part that I'm not quite getting. And Bianca, let me know if I'm what you <laughs> think about this. But I know that we need to consider the intent behind these works, which were simply recreating what Cottingham was seeing around him and being fascinated with commercialism and places like Times Square. Mm -hmm. But as the American landscape has changed and consumerism has evolved, commercialism has evolved, I can't help but consider a 1960s urban American landscape, which was when Cunningham stopped doing commercial art and then became a full-time artist. I can't help but feel nostalgic. Yeah. Because one of their super saturated colors, and this is all to say that, again, this is just my interpretation, but I also can't help but think of old Hollywood technicolor films. We were talking about musicals earlier. Yeah. I can't help but think of Singing in the Rain, which was a film done in 1950s. In this one scene, it's the Broadway ballet scene where Gene Kelly is surrounded by all those light up Hollywood signs and everything is so, so saturated. So I don't know. Personally, I think it's hard not to look at his work and not feel nostalgia at all. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting concept because the letter itself as an individual 
doesn't seem nostalgic when you think of a letter as an abstracted form Mm -hmm. that even though we know we've been taught that this letter makes a sound that this letter means something that when you see this letter it's representative of language but when you look at the letter b Mm -hmm. it's just a shape it's just an abstracted form that we have been told means something right but i see what you mean because it's interesting to think about word and image in the context of nostalgia because for us like singing in the rain and you know we were Mm -hmm. not born in the 1950s but many of his letters for me do recall this kind of old hollywood or like golden age america quote unquote i'm you know not calling it that but you know what i mean (laughs) i do right because the letters are architectural yes they're very structural and it it does kind of remind me of like a diner or like night hawks or something like that which feels very nostalgic even though it's not a nostalgia that we ourselves have participated in Mm -hmm. it's in fact fabricated right exactly so i think looking at his other works as well. I'll make sure to list other images on the resources page. And I think when combining all of that together, again, yeah. just my perspective. But no, I, I, ooh, I, I love this. <laughs> so up next, we have a lovely interview with our friends at the OSUMA. When you listen, just a disclaimer, we were able to physically be in the space and look at the two artworks in person. But being in person, we did have to wear our masks the whole time. And when we were in the gallery, you know, it's not the most conducive space to absorbing sound for good quality (laughs) podcasts. So it's going to sound a little bit different. It's still a great conversation. But, you know, we just got (laughs) to... It's wild times. Got to be flexible. And hopefully you guys still enjoy it. Let us know what you think. Yeah. So we're going to take a little break, and whenever you come back, you'll hear our interview with staff members at the OSU Museum of Art. So we are here at the OSU Museum of Art with two of my lovely former colleagues, Kristen Duncan and Christina Elliott. Welcome, ladies, to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Of course. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourselves and what you do here at the museum? Sure. I'll jump in first. Uh, My name's Kristen. I am the Marketing and Communications Specialist. So my job really is to uh, run with what programming our education team has already created and how brilliantly they've planned things out, as well as promote whatever exhibition we have going on here. So whether it be through our digital channels or through writing a press release, I really am here to promote the museum. Uh, Christina? Uh, My name is Christina Elliott, and I am the Associate Curator of Education for Academic Initiatives, and so I am very fortunate to be part of an educational team. Uh, We have two other members who are dedicated towards uh, student staff and K-12, so I get to focus on 
community and college engagements. And so I help manage tours, workshops, class visits, outreach, um, any aspect of our collection and exhibitions that's involved with OSU. Yeah. Also awesome. out here doing the most, Truly. of course. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. It's so funny how Gianna and I have talked before on the show how the museum shaped so much of how we are going out into the world and talking about art. So I'm really yeah. excited to come back here and see how it's changed or especially during COVID too, like how do academic programs change and how does marketing for an art museum change? What do those look like moving forward? Yeah. And you guys have been doing it on the daily too with all the daily art activities and getting people engaged now making those uh, interactive bags to hand out as well. So yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, everyone on the team, uh, the museum team, has a different perspective, but one really interesting thing of working with all of these different components of the museum is that everyone comes with this great skill sets um, that complement each other, and so I'm relatively new here on the team, but it's been a blessing to come in with other members who have you know, they've just helped me to get my feet on the ground and you being one of them, Gianna, um, as a student intern here, it was helpful to get that background knowledge of how things have been done in the past and what areas we needed to improve on uh, in our communications. And so it's always a learning process and you know, we should always be learning new things, (laughs) but uh, it's been super, super helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, I was still here when we were just transitioning into COVID and it was really crazy and not how I thought I would be ending my time here, but I was just so humbled by the way that our team was just, this is it, this is the situation, how do we move forward? And we really hit the ground running and I do follow a lot of other museum platforms obviously just as a person interested in what other museums are doing but as someone in the industry it's important to see what's going on and and I will say you know um, throughout the pandemic uh, a lot of times people don't find art um, or the arts as an important thing but really uh, the purpose of the museum is a place of learning and education and we really feel like we want to be the glue that holds the community together and that provides opportunities for the community and for the university to engage with art and learn and uh, have fun. Yeah. So hopefully we're just transitioning into a more <laughs> digital format to do yeah. that. Yeah. And Which, this is exciting too. I hope that people listening to the podcast can either engage with you online or hopefully if they're nearby can soon learn more and come and travel and yeah see what's going on and we will make sure to drop all the links to the osu museum of art but definitely hop on the daily art activity train yeah just do yourself a favor all right well yeah we are sitting here next to two pieces of art one by robert indiana and the other by robert cottingham and I ha- I'm a little bit more familiar with these works because I was still working at the OSUMA whenever we first had a show of works by the art collector George Kravis 
come in and we had the big lip couch set up in the middle of the gallery and it was a really really fun show that was, I actually got to help unpack uh, some of the Warhols and the Lichtensteins when they first came in mm -hmm. so I'm excited to be back and look at these kind of in a different way and hear a little bit more from you guys about what this collection has brought to the museum, how you're working with it online, digitally, and how it shapes your programming too. Having all of this, this huge number of works really brought into the museum. So do you, we want to get started with talking about George Kravis? I think so. And I also the reason why I really wanted to touch on George Kravis is because the last exhibition you all had was called In the Mind of the Collector. So of course, we can't talk about this work without talking about the collector himself. Christina, do you want to give us a little insight into George Kravis himself? Yeah, so, uh, you know, his full title, George R. Kravis II, uh, was a Tulsa-based broadcaster and collector. Um, he was actually one of the earliest broadcasters to have a standalone FM radio station in Oklahoma, and he was one of the youngest as well. He started collecting at a very early age. His parents were passionate about the arts as well. And so it became a family tradition to sort of purchase art and gift it to each other, which I find adorable <laughs> as a collector and maybe even a hoarder myself. But he really, he held on to these things uh, and started to expand on his interests uh, at a very young age and his early teens. Um, and it's not that often that you see someone grow passionate uh, for the arts and design at such an early age. And so the breadth of his collection is just incredibly dynamic. Uh, we are so fortunate to have it here and it does complement what we already have in the permanent collection. We uh, have a, an incredible variety of things. Uh, sometimes it seems a little scatterbrained because we have inherited different collections from multiple OSU departments and faculty members, and so there was no one curatorial force selecting our works. And so the Kravis Collection helps complement and solidify that in that our collection is predominantly works on paper, prints, and objects of industrial design, and the Kravis Collection helps fill in all of those gaps from 1900 to the early 2000s. And so uh, we can fill out all of the bowls chronologically and uh, based on different art movements, thanks to his donation. Mm -hmm. I so really great. like that you guys were able to highlight some of that industrial design and home design within the works of, uh, or the context of an art museum and an art collection. So. When you think about someone who collects art um, on such a major scale, it's I, th I think one of the most interesting things is looking at what qualifies for someone's collection. How do you pick out those pieces and how do you showcase that? So within the context of an art museum, why are you highlighting a vacuum? You know, or what are those household objects that are kind of worth merit and worth uh, taking on. And this isn't the first time the OSUMA has done that too. I remember we had an exhibition here that was showing the history of cameras mm -hmm. and it started all the way to the brownie and then it had an iPhone mm -hmm. in it at the end. And when we led tours, it was that idea of thinking about one day that iPhone or the device that you have in your pocket will one day be in a museum. So it goes back to the idea of Art is an object and mm -hmm. breaking it down to those fundamental roots. I think that we talk about a lot on the podcast. Yeah. 
so do you guys want to tell us more a little bit about the OSU MA's relationship with Kravis and how you were actually able to obtain a large portion of this collection? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, I know in 2017, you referred to an exhibition uh, that we had done that featured a lot of Kravis's collection and that actually took place when he was still alive. Mm -hmm. And that exhibition was called Oklahoma and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And our curator, our associate curator here at the museum, Arlette, had formed this relationship and friendship with George R. Kravis. And when we hosted that exhibition, it was really one of the first times that Kravis had ever had his works of art displayed for the public. And he got a great kick out of sharing his collection and it being um, an educational purpose. And so through fostering that relationship, we became one of very few institutions that was able to get a part of his personal collection upon his passing. Um, when he passed in 2018, I believe, we worked with uh, his close family members who were deciding on where his collection was going to go. And so I think over, he had over 5,000 pieces in his personal collection, which is just <laughs> mind-blowing. And we were so um, lucky enough to receive over 700 of those pieces. And so it's just been a huge asset to us and we are eternally grateful for the Kravis family and for George R. Kravis II to have this mindset of sharing his collection and for it to live on and have a purpose of education. And so that was just a little bit of the genesis behind um, us and the relationship that we had. I don't know if you have anything to add, Christina. The fact that our chief curator of collections, Arlette Cleric, uh, has a concentration as an art historian in industrial design and the history of graphic design was her and George were two peas in a pod, and and they became really good friends, actually. Uh, our director, Vicki Berry, and Arlette um, went on numerous different trips to museums, um, to New York with George, um, to discuss aspects of the exhibition or his collection or loans or just to go see art, and they became very close. And I think he knew um, that not only was it going to a university museum, but it was going to people who would really... Um, enjoy it and utilize it to its fullest extent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I sat in on a few of the tours with Arlette as the curator from this exhibition and uh, it just reminds me of she has so many incredible stories about George and about specific things in his collection and when he chose to collect them and why. And his dog Zephyr. And his dog, yeah, and his dog. <laughs> And um, it just, I, one thing I was going to probably have Christina talk about was just Arlette's purpose behind designing each gallery in the show and her purpose behind um, the title in the mind of a collector and how she kind of formulated that idea. Mm -hmm. That uh, really leads me into the next question that I wanted to ask you guys because coming from an education background and being part of the programming we did for In the Mind of the Collector, our relationship with the curatorial process was, it's always essential, education and programming obviously go hand in hand, but 
the way that this exhibition was designed and how you moved through it really helped guide and informed how I made my tours. So I just wanted to hear your perspective, uh, Christina, on the educational program we, we did. And I know that you were not here for the first exhibition we had, but if you had anything to add on kind of the differences between how those two exhibitions were displayed and just the, the big ideas that can arise from a same collection of work, but you can focus on so many different things, I just think is so interesting. I think the, the first exhibition, which both were curated by Arlette, but obviously the 2017 Oklahoma and Beyond, um, George himself had a lot of say in the selection of those items. Um, and like Kristen said, it was the first time he did have a warehouse uh, that he, in a design center, he dubbed it, and uh, he had a private independent contractor curator who was helping him sort everything and acting as a registrar, but nothing was fully displayed. So it was the first time he saw a, a majority of it in one place on the walls and not in boxes. But during that time I was here and I actually went with our PA, Audrey Gleason, we got to go to the design center and it was almost overwhelming. Was it magical? It was <laughs> this kind of like almost like a cabinet of curiosity type environment when you when you see like big paintings you know in these shelves and holders and then when you turn the other direction there's like teapots and spoons everywhere so that kind yeah. of mishmash of objects not on the wall was also really interesting to kind of see in the flesh. Yeah it's it, it, the whole warehouse was like, yeah, one giant cabinet of curiosities. <laughs> I think it's a great way to describe it. So I think the first exhibition kind of took on that feeling too. I think George was more enthusiastic about sharing the works of art. And, uh, you know, we, we have uh, Stillwater Medical and OSU here, but Payne County is also a very rural area. Mm -hmm. And so being able to share these types of works that some people never see in their lives or have to travel to really big cities in order to interact with. I think that really got him pumped up and it was more about focusing on the works of art and sharing those with the community was the drive of the first exhibition where the second exhibition, it was still part of our motive. We had a lot of lessons and activities that were based on specific works and their background or associated artists or movements. But a bigger theme of the show was actually George himself mm -hmm. and the act of collecting and a little bit of that sort of um, museum side of things. Why do we collect? What happens to collections? Um, how do collectors influence museums or the art market or artists themselves? And so a lot of the programming, um, like, well, I have to give Gianna and Kat all the credit for creating <laughs> Cherished Possessions because it was, like, right before I got here. That but... was, like, 10,000% all Kat. Like, again, <laughs> just another queen at the museum. Like, uh, and a great way to get people interested in the idea of objects. Like, yeah. I, in all ages, too. I remember we had this gentleman come in, and he just happened to have, like, all these cameras in his car. And then he came in, and he was like, oh, you guys are doing this thing? Let me pull out all my cameras for you. And instead of bringing in one object, we talked about his, like, ten cameras yeah. together. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was such a fun community project, because really the prompt was uh, bring in something that you cherish and that you love, mm -hmm. and we'll come and we'll take a picture of it, and you can mm -hmm. share your story. So 
I can't tell you how adorable it was to walk out here and see little three-year-olds with a tiny rock or with their stuffed bunny. And then also it translated so well to other age groups and, and kind of hearing what people's personal story was. Oh, yeah. Stuffed animals yeah. were coming from every age demographic. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Everyone's got a favorite story. Oh, I, I still have a stuffed animal. It's, oh, sure. What's your stuffed animal? Um, Our older sister, Adrienne, made it for me. She gave it to me for my birthday when I was little. So oh, yeah. it's like a little green bear. Cute. Cute. Yeah. I like having the public think about objects that they collect in uh, a museum studies mindset without you know people do that naturally but you only learn about it really in that academic context when you take an art history or museum studies class so I really like the idea that you all were bringing in people from the community and having them uh, just think about what the stuff that they have in their home or when you go out and you buy something you know I love thinking about how things in the museum connect to you outside of the walls of a gallery mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a, a lot of where we start some of the prompts and some of the ideas for tours mm -hmm. uh, when we did we did a homeschool tour um, and it was a very large group of about 70 students uh, and their parents from toddlers all the way up to teenagers. And so we broke them into roughly, you know, elementary, middle school, high school level. And even like the six-year-olds, we would stand in front of this wall filled with uh, Kravis's radio collection and yeah. say, what do you collect? Is it rocks? Is it seashells? Is it Pez dispensers? And every, they all, you know, are jumping up with what they collect. Or do you have an uncle that, you know, collects hats or something and is always wearing a funny t-shirt or, and then we can use that as a gateway, something that is incredibly familiar and something that's conversational to start to tease out more art theory and mm -hmm. art historical terms. So we can say, oh, well, what's your favorite radio here? Well, you like the green one and you like the blue one. Do you guys know the difference between subjective and objective? Mm -hmm. Do you guys know the difference? Do you guys know what aesthetic and what taste means? What does taste mean other than just tasting your food? Mm -hmm. You know, we all have a different taste when it comes to works of art or to objects. Mm -hmm. And so to teach, find a way to teach a conversation on aesthetics and taste to six years old, yeah. six year olds, like I, I think that collector aspect is something yeah. we can all relate to. Yeah. And so we try to take advantage of those opportunities yeah, whenever we I can. Love that. I also found that so interesting when I was leading tours here as well. And I think, again, when you break things down into the context of an object, that idea of art can be so intimidating. So it's, mm -hmm. you ask them. Approachable. It's approachable. Mm -hmm. yeah. So like your example of the radio wall, which I just loved. So you ask them, okay, this one is made out of plastic and this one is made out of wood. So which one do you think was made first? And you start getting them to think down these essential ideas like composition or materials, all that stuff. And then they start to tell you what it is without them not even knowing and I'm like gotcha <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. can do this yeah it's, it's not it doesn't become such a burden when yeah. you think about that personal and and relatable component 
Yeah. Yeah, we try to trick people into doing formal analysis whenever we can. If we, if we walked in and said, okay, we're going to have a formal discussion about the qualities of this work of art, people would hightail it out of here. Right. But when they leave, they don't realize they have actually had, you know, yeah. they've done some critical analysis of a work of right. art yeah. visually, even if they didn't think so. Yeah, so everyone listening to Art Pop Talk, this has just been one big gotcha. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, well, I want to talk about from a programming standpoint, you were able to implement these different uh, thinking strategies and conceptual ideas when thinking of something as simple as the alphabet, because I know you did so much and Kat did so much with this alphabet series in the exhibition. So it was just so cool. I just want the world to know about it. <laughs> yeah, sure. I guess I'll, I'll kick that one off. Um, Kat came up with this brilliant idea of putting out this large magnetic um, board that we have. It's, it's actually quite beautiful. It's got this metallic finish to it. And she created a crossword puzzle. And what we did was we just reproduced each alphabet letter in a tiny magnet form so that you could solve this crossword puzzle on this interactive board. And uh, it's I, such a brilliant idea of creating an activity that helps you engage with the artwork itself, um, but then also having these prompts to appreciate these prints, mm -hmm. whether it be a six-year-old or a 60-year-old, of the detail that went into the creation of these Cottingham prints and uh, the thinking behind uh, why we kind of displayed them the way we did and it was such a fun activity we had a lot of kiddos that really enjoyed it but even adults really yeah. enjoyed, enjoyed this activity and so there was a lot of people taking selfies with the crossword board yeah. and so next time we're, we have to we have to have more instagramable moments oh, in the yeah. next exhibition you know you've done good when you, yeah. got, you got people in here like taking selfies and i think the uh, another um inspiration or thought behind uh, bringing that into the gallery mm -hmm. and not just having it as a part of our educational space mm -hmm. was having this relationship between education and fun and also the art mm -hmm. and so bringing those activities and having that interaction right inside the gallery really is a huge part of our mission statement mm -hmm. to um, you know educate and have fun while we're doing it and so we didn't want uh everything to be super stuffy where you're just mm -hmm. you know yeah. come in you look at art and then you leave and you don't remember it two weeks from now mm -hmm. and so that is definitely something that she did a great job on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that exhibition was fun it was colorful it was a treat to the eyes for kids and adults so i'm a sucker for anything interactive but as someone who works in our art lab here, which I believe I've talked about before, which is the museum's creative space. But the creativity doesn't only exist in the art lab, and it's our job to try to bring that into the gallery space. So, And that was great, and it was a whole space, and it was a whole wall dedicated to this interaction, which you just love to see it. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit, just since I was have been thinking about Robert Indiana in preparation for this, one kind of because we're looking at the love print it's so recognizable but i think maybe there's a little bit more context behind the artist himself that we don't get a lot 
So I wanted, we had talked about queering the museum on a podcast before and how this uh, love print might lend itself to something like the education department and queering the museum. And I also wanted to think about love in terms of marketing and graphic design, how we're playing with this this image that's so easy, easily recognizable and it is a piece of art, but it's also something that seems very poignant socially and how an art museum might wrestle with programming as well as uh, social statements. That's a, that's a great question, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, but really a huge thing that we're proud of here at the OSU Museum of Art is one of our value statements is uh, diversity and inclusiveness. And um, we really want to provide an opportunity of learning and inclusiveness and diversity for everyone. And uh, as you were talking, I kept thinking about um, some of our programming and how the exhibition kind of was at the perfect time of around Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. And um, having that theme of love and that beautiful boca sofa, the lip sofa that you yeah. talked about earlier, and just having these artworks that are very symbolic mm -hmm. uh, and how we market them and translate them and create an opportunity for conversation mm -hmm. here at the museum. And uh, what's great about it is now it's a part of our permanent collection. Yeah. And yeah. so we have these opportunities forever mm -hmm. and we can reference back to them because they belong to us mm -hmm. and we're able to continue the conversation mm -hmm. and continue prompting yeah I think a big part of the museum is to provide connections mm -hmm. between people and so having this Indiana print and being able to reference back to it as a conversation starter whether it be socially or even just through a Valentine's Day post <laughs> yeah. is such yeah. an incredible opportunity. So yeah. I think that's that's a great thing that you bring up. I think I, we'll my go. answer was going to go in completely the, a different direction. <laughs> I love that. Multiple perspectives. But that's what we're all here to do. This is why this yeah. is dream team. Yeah. No, I agree 100% with all of that. I think, I guess, I as I was listening to your question, I went into the contemporary art historian part of my brain. And <laughs> I love that part of your started brain. Started <laughs> going into critical analysis. Um and so, but I think it folds over. Uh, my concentration is in modern and contemporary art, uh, really focused on mixed media and collage. And I kind of just lump screen printing in with that too, because Robert Rauschenberg is like, oh, my of best course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, oh, yeah. Bobby. Oh, Bobby. <laughs> uh, but. What I was going to say is I, a reason I love um, collage and printmaking so much and pop art mm -hmm. um, is that pop art really appropriated or reappropriated a lot of the contemporary or historic visual language that was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think when we say, um, you know, art can be a, a mode of activism, it can be a mode of education, you know, especially when we get into art that is incredibly graphic or representational. Mm -hmm. um, it can be propagandic, but it can be advertising for a good cause um, in order to really create awareness. And mm -hmm. so part of pop art, you know, Andy Warhol and his factories, he was saying something conceptually too about things that are mass marketed and the saturation of images and 
all of this and it becomes a self-reflexive structure. And so I love art that is self-reflexive. Not only is it using a medium, but it's using a medium for a conceptual end. And so not only is Robert Indiana sort of creating this image that has such a heartfelt motivation behind it, he is reproducing. He is reproducing in a medium akin to advertising. Mm -hmm. He is reproducing it in Great sculptures point. and prints and paintings and really saturating the market with this message of love. I think the first time I saw this image was when I was a child on Sesame Street. And so how much is that a self-reflexive moment in pop art when yeah. pop art is in direct connection and sometimes criticism of mass media streams? And mm -hmm. so to show that, you know, art can really take advantage of these things on a very aesthetic level with something that, you know, we just find visually pleasing, but something mm -hmm. that can really move beyond that and infiltrate all different layers of our society. Even if it's a subliminal message, we've all mm -hmm. seen this love somewhere yeah, and yes. it has become a very positive word in American visual language, yeah. I think. That's so good. Yes, I love yes. this. This is so poignant and this is why I personally love pop art so much because I love that like saturation and that critique of culture that I myself am admittedly involved in but I think what what the love represents in this moment is so fascinating because Gianna and I were just talking about that kind of fake allyship that you see and how companies and media participate in that aesthetic and that um, visual language of support but what and, and then to have Indiana do that in the context of pop art that is critical but that is also a, you know the message in itself if you take it by itself is a good thing mm -hmm. so I love that kind of tension between the two yeah yeah oh, that's good and I love too I mean Christina as you pointed out we see love being replicated you know we see them as a bookend we see them as stickers and whether consumers are aware or unaware of who Robert Indiana was, we know about this love sculpture primarily is I think how people know it. And I wanted to point out too that Queer Eye's season that just premiered was in PA and they have a love statue and on their cover on Netflix right now is the love statue that they have uh, in, in the middle of Philly. Uh, I'm so, I, I love that they are using it because they are using it for the idea of inclusivity, mm -hmm. but it's interesting those other consumers purchasing, purchasing this idea mm -hmm. of love and not understanding like what kind of love, what was the, the intent behind the artist, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, that just like gave me life. Thank you so much. <laughs> so where can everyone follow you guys, the OSU Museum, keep up to date with anything any updates with COVID but also something like a reception if possible yeah sure so our social media channels are obviously a great way you can follow us at OSU Museum of Art um, also our website which is museum.okstate.edu that's a really great way uh, we're actually just revamping the website so Ooh. there's going to be so many new things on it and we, uh, we have a new virtual tour that you can still go back to to see in the mind of a collector. Awesome. That would so be super awesome. fun. And we're hoping to do that as well with this next show. 
Um, but yeah, that, that's the two best ways that you can catch us. Perfect. Well, thank you guys so, so much for being here. I know. And yeah, obviously we'll just come back and bother you guys when the next exhibition yeah. is up. <laughs> Absolutely. All yeah, right. Thanks. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode. As always, you can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram if you're not already. If you're not, I don't know what you're doing. And you can listen to us wherever you find your podcast. So thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Bye.